I know many of you listening or watching to this podcast today care about life, care about human life. Many of you would describe yourselves as as pro-life, um, and it's a very important discussion. But um, I'm very excited to have uh, this guest today. Her name is Nicole, and she has not just a philosophical kind of view of pro-life, but has some um, very real and raw life experiences that uh, she has to share for us today. So, Nicole, it's great to have you on, and uh, why don't you tell the guest a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. Well, my name is Nicole Smith, and I am married to a wonderful man uh, and have two beautiful little girls. Um, my career beyond motherhood, which is the most important career you could have, as as I'm sure everybody else would agree, um, would also be on the communication sides of global human rights. So I've taken on many, many topics over the years, one of which being abortion, but uh, also uh, the cases of the child bride in Uganda, the sex slave of Afghanistan, the religious minority imprisoned on Iran, and really any continent has been that's occupied. I've probably dealt with uh, some really tough choices and cultural realities um, and advocated on the behalf of those that are hurting, you know, so that's really my career background. Um, But as you said, yeah, I, birth of my second daughter would bring uh, flesh and bone to my career, Um, really make it all the more real and tangible because it became my everyday. So Mm. Uh, I'm actually going to throw a little bit of a curveball at you. I said we're going to jump into the uh, uh, to the, your daughter, which we will. Um, but let me actually go the other way first. Yeah, um, sure. Where where did the um, that desire of being in some ex- pretty extreme si- situations, particularly globally, um, yeah, you're in religious persecution and uh, in the Middle East over there, you know that's. That doesn't scream a lot of little girls' favorite dreams when they grow up. So uh, tell us just a little bit about that process of what led you there. Yeah, actually, um, it's funny you say that because um, I've had that brought up quite a bit throughout my career. You know, how do you handle um, such such tough topics so often? But really, it originated. My parents were... um, church planters as a, as a child, and they dealt with a lot of at-risk youth. So they, they dealt with the church planting for uh, youth ministries. Um, and so, I don't know, it's just like a family cultural reality that if someone was in need, you get up, you help, right? And so I just grew up that way. My brother and I were very oriented and wired that way because that's how we were raised. And as I got older, I actually... Um, my family's not really oriented this way, but more in the political spectrum. I became just really in, intrigued by politics very, very early in life, uh, which my parents allowed me to foster in, in my own way. So as I got older, I, I decided that I wanted to go and get a ma- um, an undergraduate in political science, and then I pursued a master's in law and public policy. And um, yeah, so I, I was not really prepared for what God had in store with the use of that education. Um, I had more of a a mindset that I would go into constitutional law. And the irony of all ironies, one of my very first jobs out of my master's was at a constitutional law firm. And, but I was on the communication side, we called it the the court of public opinion. And they had a, an extensive network of affiliates on a global scale. Um, So things that we did in the United States were oriented towards life and liberty issues. So that's a lot of where the abortion topic came in, uh, though I, I did deal with it in Europe and that kind of stuff as well. And uh, it, but yeah, that global aspect uh, kind of came into play with those global affiliates. And so some of the biggest work that we did were mostly with religious minorities that were imprisoned in Iran, Sudan, Turkey, all sorts of different countries uh, that was very common for people to be thrown in prison for apostasy or um, a a threat to national security, Iran would use that uh, reasoning a lot. Well, if you go into Iran, court systems, you're not going to expect that a Christian would get fair due process of law, right? So essentially what we would do is bring, bring awareness to these cases globally. We would raise a bunch of petition signatures. One of our cases got over a million petition signatures. We present it to political, the political process. Uh, President Obama 
caught attention of it and put um, one of our clients on the Iranian deal. And he was released back to the United States. Uh, another one out of Sudan, uh, this poor woman was actually pregnant, had to be imprisoned with her young child because if she's a Christian, she can't be her children can't be raised by Christians. So they have to, children are actually imprisoned with their parents if they're, um, yeah, it's pretty messed up. But uh, yeah, her, her case, uh, Angelina Jolie ended up taking on to it. Also the Pope, she was eventually released and now lives in the United States. So again, those are sort of that path that I didn't really anticipate at the outset. Um, I sort of got into this digital communication world that I wasn't actually trained for, but I was very intimately aware um, of the intricate knowledge of really the policy processes and that kind of stuff. So it actually gave me kind of a leg up in that world. And I saw great success and success being that we saw great outcomes like people were freed out of prison in Iran. It, it would take time, but, you know, some pressure and um, some good political maneuvering, we got into places and people were released. So it was pretty, pretty amazing. But I got that question quite often. Um, I would go to these uh, conferences and, uh, you know, you circle up and everybody's like, hey, you know, what do you do for your company? Yeah, I, what company do you work for? I'm like, I sell shoes and I sell uh, coats and whatever. And like, what do you do? I'm like, I, I free uh, um, religious minorities out of, you know, like, why are you here? I was like, because people do need to be free from these places. And these are the tools that we're able to use to really impact outcomes that are just unreachable, like really was just unreachable. The outcomes for these people would largely mean a death sentence. And I mean, literally, they would die because uh, they're, they're very short timetables for their release. Um, sometimes it's just like six to eight months. Um, sometimes it'll be several years, but still they're in Iran. They hang you up on uh, out for the public to, to see and literally execute you in those manners. So it's just really brutal. Yeah. Which that br brutal is a good word there. Um, mm -hmm. Very, yeah. very intense. Mm -hmm. um, now when you're bringing, I'm just trying to work on my own timeline here. Um, when you were doing that, were you, were you married and a mom at that point or did that happen later? Yeah, actually. Um, so I was married in school. We, we actually got married. Um, my husband's a civil engineer, so he took his time going through school. <laughs> school. So um, yeah, so I was already married. Uh, I think it was a, about three years into to my career, four years into my career, I ended up giving birth to my first child. And I really like to tell this story because motherhood really is just a very transformative experience. At least it was for me. I kind of look at it like entering the world of Oz. So it was in black and white. And then I end, enter into Technicolor. And, it, you know, I like the birth story that I have for my first daughter is just it taught me how strong women were. And I know not all women have to take this path, but I, I'm kind of one of those like, hey, you know, go with the flow type girls. I I was like, if I can do it without an epidural, I'm going to do it. Well, I had a 29 hour labor without any medication. And I pushed for 15 minutes. I burst almost every blood vessel in my face to give birth to a child. And then I'm walking up and walking around within minutes after giving birth. And for months and months after that, my husband kept going, you did that. That's amazing. I was like, I called it the birth high. He was just like, <laughs> oh my gosh, that's amazing. And I know after that point, I was just like, oh man, uh, kind of bought into this cultural lie in a way, probably not on, on like a high level surface. My mom was a homemaker and she, she made it a very prideful endeavor, career endeavor to, to go in and, and, and be a homemaker. She always was very um, adamant that you called it homemaker. You're not, I'm not a stay at home mom. <laughs> I'm not just a mom that stays home. Like I have a career path that I've chosen. Mm. And, um, but I, I was very different than my mom. Uh, call, like personality wise, I, I knew that I wanted a bit of balance of home ownership in the sense of what I create in, in my home, but also work outside of the home and, and my own capacity in the own way and own balance too. like, um, cause you can't have all things at once. Right. Mm -hmm. So I, 
in those early years of my oldest daughter's life, like especially that first year, it was a very um, enriching experience. It was just beautiful. My, she was so sweet. She was just this beautiful little girl. And I'd gotten into an awareness of female strength that, you know, I'd always try to unwittingly compare myself to men and in some ways, because I did have this idea of wanting to go and work in a, you know, non-traditional, I guess, role in some respects. And um, then it just gave me such a deep abiding awareness of, oh my gosh, like I am incredible. I could do absolutely nothing else for the rest of my life. And I'm just amazing. (laughs) I did that, you know? And then I sustained that body, that baby, that body that I grew and with my own body, like that just like blew my mind. So that first year was just like really just a beautiful experience. And so much so that we decided we wanted another little one about the time she was a year old. And that's when things in our story sort of try to shift, um, where I experienced something that's called secondary infertility. Didn't realize that was a thing, but I think it's like 20 or 30% of infertility are second or multiple childs. Mm-hmm. Uh, usually you think it's like the first kid you struggle, but um, a lot of stuff was going on with my body. I didn't understand in the hormone space that was gave me this physical ailment um, that would prevent me from conceiving a child. And so I went on this really intense journey of um, healing, you know, because it actually put me in an immense, like, mind-bending pain. It was, I can't describe how painful it was. It was 24-7 for three years straight. I was just like, I kind of liken it to being doused with kerosene, and you just feel like you're on fire all the time. Um, I've never been set on fire, but that's what I feel like it would be. <laughs> and so I sort of went on this like journey of discovery of how to get this, uh, this um, ailment gone, the inflammation in my body that was just constantly racking my, my immune system. So after two years, uh, I sort of transitioned into a new season, which is a season of miscarriages. Unfortunately, the inflammation was going away, which meant I would get pregnant, but then it was hormone responsive. So I get pregnant and it would respond and I would lose the baby. So I, for about a year, I started to, um, go through an even more dark season than I ever imagined before, you know, here you want a baby. And then, man, my oldest, she just, children are just so spiritually aware on a level, you know, here she is like two, three years old. And I'd, I'd be like laid out on the floor, just sobbing yeah. because I've, I'm of losing another child. And my, my, my three or four year olds, like laying her hands on me, praying uh, for healing and praying that, you know, maybe God will let this baby stay with us instead of going with Jesus. And I'm just like, <laughs> just, just absolute, just a beautiful, um, but it was a struggle too. Cause I felt this is another season. It was hard to describe. It was almost like I was losing two children because mm-hmm. when I lose a baby, I was put into this really dark space that I was losing my, my baby in front of me mm-hmm. because I was losing the experiences with her where I was supposed to feel joy at all of her firsts. And I wasn't feeling any joy because I was just so racked with grief. And of course my body is just, um, tired and in pain all the time. So, um, I got a lot of people tell me all the time that like, well, you're great. You should be grateful. You have a child. And I said, Mm -hmm. I don't think you understand what the implications of what's happening, you know, uh, cause you can't, and I don't know if you have children, but, um, do you have children? I, I I've got I got two little ones and I got one on the way. So yeah, oh, congratulations! I've got my thank thank wow, you. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah, so you you know probably observed with your wife or even for yourself uh, this when you want a kid you just really want a kid. It's like this mm-hmm. like switch that goes off. Um, yeah. It's wild. So uh, yeah, it was just this deep dark cycle of about three years when the ailment was starting to, I'm finally finding the solutions. That was great that I get pregnant with my youngest daughter and she is a fighter. So we named her Cosette and it has like kind of two uses, meanings, victorious little one. Mm -hmm. Uh, I really 
enjoy meanings. I usually base it off of family names, you know, but this one really stuck. And I was like, you know, she's alive. She's here. She's, she's growing when none of her siblings were able to, you know, she's Victoria's little one. And so the pregnancy was okay. Like wasn't terrible, but wasn't great. Um, and that's really when, when we go into a new season too, um, that I don't know if I've like sk- skipped ahead of your schedule, but you know, we've arrived at my second daughter's birth. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. <laughs> okay, good. Um, yeah. So, uh, this was COVID like she's a COVID baby. She was mm-hmm. born in April, 2020. Oh, so, so she's, she's really a COVID baby. Mm, she's like at the height of it. <laughs> oh my gosh. Uh, yeah. So it was like, um, I don't know if in, anybody remembers this or if you do, if you experienced it, but, um, you know, it was like dry, literal, like parking garage gynecological exams. Like Mm. I, you had to go into parking garages to get your prenatal testing. Most everything was telehealth. It was awful. So unfortunately I went into labor before, like they didn't give me my 36 week like test and shots to make sure I didn't have an infection. Mm-hmm. They usually do because of COVID they pushed everything back. Well, I went to labor three weeks early. So 27 hour labor, they didn't touch me, but a few times. And as it turns out, I had what they call prolapse cord. That's when the cord comes out in advance of the baby that was mm-hmm. discovered at 27 hours. And, uh, it was, you know, you're just laboring. And again, I don't have an epidural. I didn't it first time. I didn't do this time either. And you're just laboring and everything's fine. Actually, my husband had started to take a nap <laughs> and, uh, cause it had been a while, you know, I don't fault him for that. And, uh, the doctor finally comes in. It's like, Hey, you know, it's been a really long time, but it's looking like the baby might be in a little distress. I need to check you. So she checks me and, um, yeah, I prolapse cord. She yells out like 20 medical professionals are in that room scrambling to get me covered up and r- rush to the OR. Mm-hmm. I have no idea what a prolapse cord is. Like they're very rare. And, um, my husband's like, stands up all of a sudden it's like what's happening nobody comes to tell him what's happening really rush the or i don't have an epidural so i feel everything that they're doing shoving the catheter in the late the doctor's hand has to be still remain up there to keep the cord the baby off the cord as long as possible and i start to like couple tears roll down and this sweet anesthesiologist like says you know i know you're feeling a little overwhelmed right now but we do this all the time. You're going to be okay. And I was like, but I'm not falling asleep. What are you going to do? Are you just going to rip her out of me while I'm awake? And she Mm -hmm. said, no, we're going to put you under general. And at that point I black out. And when I wake up, I have no baby for hours. I have no baby and I'm delusional. I have no idea where I'm at, you know, because when you don't have an epidural, they do put you under general. And when you come out, you just feel everything because there's no epidural to sort of taper off and then pain medication to come into play. So they put me on a narcotic, but it never did anything. It just made me high as a kite. Honestly, I was just Mm -hmm. like, just out of my mind delusional. And, um, finally they bring her to me. Um, and almost immediately we know something is wrong. She's acting erratic. She can't latch. She's looks like she's having seizures, all this stuff, but it takes four days for them to formalize that there's something wrong. And they send us off into NICU again, height of height of COVID. So, uh, no family could be there. My husband couldn't be there. Um, here I had just had major surgery without, uh, any pain medication, And then when you're in upper NICU, the intensive NICU, they just give you a chair in the corner. And I couldn't put my feet up. There was no place. And at the end of the day, they get you in a raffle and you get to maybe stay in a separate room and you go in from like six o'clock and you have to be out in the morning and then right back to your chair again. 
And at night I would, I mean, just a massive box with a really thin mattress on it. That's what I slept on. And I would just, my body would go into shock. I would just shake uncontrollably from the pain and, um, up the next morning, right back out. Cause I had like memorized their shift changes so I could follow what was happening. Well, they never told me this actually. I, uh, three weeks later I, during a shift change, I heard one of the nurses during a shift change say that she had been resuscitated at birth. They never formally told me that she was ever resuscitated. And confirming was the insurance uh, that said resuscitation of infant $746. It was a line item. Yes. So we just, um, it was, it was hard because, you know, again, you're doing this by yourself and you have a near five-year-old at this point. Um, they isolate you. They, they, yeah, it was indescribable uh, experience. But I had this one really impactful conversation I had with my husband over the phone late night. He was just didn't want to get off the phone with me. Got to understand my husband's very introverted and quiet. <laughs> Talking is not really his jam. <laughs> so I'm like... I just want to get off the phone. I want to go to sleep, you know? And, um, he goes, Nikki, this is, this is it. Like our daughter, she is our mission. She's, hmm. she's giving life and breath to, to the identity that we have in Christ, the identity we have as a, as image bearer. It doesn't matter her outcome. She is important. She is precious. She is oh. ours. And she's who we prayed for. It's who hmm. God gave us. And, um, it would be six months, uh, when she would receive the formal diagnosis of cerebral palsy, which is essentially brain damage. And the way every case of cerebral palsy is different because the damage done to the brain is a unique brain done, you know, the damage is done to a unique brain. So, uh, everyone is just like our, our idea is CPU is always, um, they're, they're bedridden. They're in a wheelchair the rest of their life. They can't speak. They can't do a lot of stuff. And early on, you don't know, like they just have guesses, educated guesses. Mm -hmm. And she had to get a gastric tube because she was unable to feed. Um, she is three and a half. She is free of that gastric tube. She can now mm -hmm. eat. Uh, she cannot speak. She cannot walk. Um, but she will. She will one day. Um, it's a matter of when, not if, you know. And so the prognosis that she had at the early outset, never eat, never walk, never talk, you know, well, she will be a victorious little one. She's just mm. chipping away at every little one. And so I just, I remember a NICU standing over her and going, God, now I know why you gave her that name. And I insisted that everyone call her by her full name, because uh, her short, her, her nickname is Etty, but we call her Cosette because I wanted even a doctor that didn't believe in God, that every time that they uttered her name, they were speaking a blessing of victory over her uh, every single time. And so through prayer, she will have victory. Um, it's not a matter of if it's when, so that's, that's where things sort of have, um, given a deeper meaning to like to our, to my mission. So, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Uh, that so many, uh, winding roads, ups and downs, uh, th throughout the, the, the precursor, the buildup, uh, of, of trying to get pregnant, um, yeah to having pregnancy and then obviously the, the birth itself. Um, and then, and then afterwards, um, already, uh, proving so many people wrong. Um, Amen. Uh, and what, what an incredible, um, story of, uh, of perseverance, of strength. Um, that, that kind of goes back to what you're talking about before of, I, I see this a lot with women, um, that, yeah, well, I'm I'm just uh, I'm just a mom, or uh, just this, just that, and I look at my wife um, 
my like I said, my wife's pregnant right now, and her pregnancies, um, she is a blessed soul. Um, she is sick like the entire nine months. Oh my gosh, uh, of her all three and all three um the babies are due in the summer so she's throwing up while it's 100 degrees like but then that baby's born and she feels great um but what an incredible thing there's there's nothing more like for those of you that are listening if you're if you're not a parent and um like you've not experienced that there there literally is nothing like it in the world Um, no it isn't Mm -mm. it's incredible, like absolutely incredible that that is your child that came out of, and in your case, out of your body. Um, if you're the husband, out, out, of, out of your your wife's body, it's amazing. And for our culture to really downgrade that. Oh, I um, know. Is, is awful. Um, it's, a, it's a great disservice to, to women, honestly. And I, and I think it's, it, it started off really in a quiet manner, right? We're, mm-hmm. we're wanting... Uh, the suffragettes didn't downgrade their womanhood in order to obtain what they should be, which is equal act, equal um, footing within society to be able to vote, right? And then, you know, we've moved so much that this idea of equal footing within equal access and equal outcome, um, that it slowly just eats away at the reality, the truth that, you know, we're seeking out this male male view of the bombastic, bombastic strength, which is beautiful. Mm. Like, don't get me wrong. Men are just the way that God makes you to be strong and powerful and to protect is something of its own, its own brand mm. of, of, of beauty and that should be celebrated. Um, but in an attempt to, to get these little gains, what they saw as gains, um, they whittled away the reality of women's strength. And it is a great disservice. You know, I, I again, I, I didn't, I don't think I fully bought into it, but I, really at the surface on the, on under the surface, I feel like I did until I had kids and I'm like, Oh my gosh, this is just amazing. You know, and everybody has different experiences. I understand. Um, but it, it just, when you really think about the fact you grew a person, like, and, yeah. and when you equate, like, especially when you're saying your wife is sick, but they, they equate like the, the energy outputs required at different stages in gestational development. It's insane that women are still upright, still walking around, still taking other children, taking care of mm-hmm. other children still doing jobs. Like, I mean, I know my husband when he has a cold, <laughs> he's definitely not. A- <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and that's, that's actually, uh, I mean, we make fun of it so much in society, but it's true. That's actually um, female strength exemplified. Like we we can en- endure intense amount of internal pain and still continue to push because we can deliver human life through our body. And I know what most women are like, I can't do that. No, you can. You just don't want to because you have an epidural. It's a wonderful option. Don't get me wrong. Uh, but you can actually do that. You know, that's what you're designed to do. And so when we have these moments of um, uh, resilience that are transcend what men are like, how do you do that? It's because <laughs> of that, you know. And I think we've sort of uh, forgotten, you know, because we don't really think of it in that way, that, that this is us being strong and powerful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, absolutely and mm-hmm. that, I, I like the way you put that of um men and obviously we're talking in generalities general of, of everybody but mm-hmm. um yeah that that strength I'll, I'll speak for on my behalf um i've always been a pretty happy-go-lucky like i've never been in a fist fight so like uh, that that side <laughs> of like physical strength of having to bash heads in or whatever it's not, never been my my big thing yeah. but i <laughs> I don't remember this specific moment, um, but I remember when I was dating my wife, and I don't think we were even engaged at that point um, that I'm thinking of, but these thoughts of like, hey, if somebody looks at her the wrong way, I'm going to do something. Um, it it was just this inner thing, this inner yeah, protection protector. that yeah, protector. I, I hadn't felt the, like I had protection for like my sister and for my, yeah, yeah. my nieces, but not this intensity. Um, and 
that's that like you said that's beautiful on its own right mm-hmm. um but yeah n- nobody nobody that knows my wife and has known the difficulties of pregnancies that she's gone through and and she is uh she stays at home with um with our kiddos um mm-hmm. and raises them nobody can say that she's weak because she's sick like no she's incredibly strong um all this while raising a baby and baby which is um for all all we know for now has been super duper healthy um and we're really grateful for that but yeah that is strength is the right word um just because she can't lift as much weight as I can does not mean that she's not strong. She yeah, absolutely Yeah, and I think it's is. a limitation in term on the term. It, it you know how like you look up a word in a dictionary and it has multi levels mm-hmm. of a definition. I think we very much um limited the word of strength to something that is outward and bombastic, bombastic. Mm-hmm. Um and that's a cheapening of that word. That's there's more to that. And, and again, too, like physical strength, but physical tied to an emotional strength that comes with that. You know, I, I look back at my, the first birth I had, you know, of course that was an amazing physical uh, accomplishment to look at my second. And it was an amazing physical accomplishment too, in its own right, but the emotional toll and strength Mm -hmm. that I had to take. So, you know, sort of my NICU experience was, I believe that the, the outward um, presentation is a reflection on the in, inward mentality. Uh, so I would get ev- up every morning about six o'clock and I would curl my hair and put my makeup on and I'd put my clothes on and I would open the curtains and I was open for business the way I looked at it. Um, mm. It was a really difficult time in which I had to push through emotionally and on a level I didn't know I was capable of. And um, I had to keep doing that. And I still have to do that today because the reality is my, my daughter's not out of the woods, right? You know, she still has many challenges that she has to um, endure, but this is built endurance in me and to a level that I just, I could not comprehend at the outset, you know, and parenthood in general is that right. It's every, every passing day, week, year is, a different set of challenges that we have to figure out the solutions to that build a, an endurance and awareness uh, of our internal reality that our own struggles, right? We're, we're not perfect. Now my daughter's eight and I'm like, okay, look, you're aware mommy and daddy are not perfect. She's like, oh, I'm aware. <laughs> yeah, I know. So, uh, but to, you know, just surmount those, those uh, ever increasing challenges that, you know, when they're little, they have little problems and they get, big, they have big problems, right? So that, that God gives you that uh, buildup of endurance through the years of, as those challenges change. And as a mother, I think that that's made me stronger in my career as well. Um, because again, it gave that flesh and blood to when I was working with the, with young child brides in Uganda, I didn't have the honor of holding her and telling her how important and precious and wonderful she, that she was. Um, I, I, and I knew that behind her, there will be hundreds of other little ones that will be put in the same circumstance than that she was that I could buy back her diary and put her back into school. But there, the culture around her would perpetuate uh, an idea that she wasn't as valuable as a man. And that wasn't okay with me. Uh, so probably getting back to the career part of uh, how hard it was is that um, I just couldn't, I couldn't settle for that anymore. That, that culture could perpetuate this reality um, that as my daughters grow in American culture is no different than Ugandan or Iranian or French or Armenian. They're all the same. They're all the same. And I know it looks different. Every culture perpetuates this idea that dignity can be measured. Someone can be devalued for another criteria or another, right? Culture perpetuates that idea. And it and it's has different products. Uh, American culture, abortion is one of those realities. Uh, human trafficking, drug culture, porn culture, euthanasia. Um, we have about 
what I believe around seven or eight core core industries that commoditize the human person and American culture. And we need to change the mindset around human value. You know, we need to, to create a mindset within our culture that says, hey, you are the image bearer of the heaven, heavenly father. Heck, heck, you don't even have to believe in God. Do you, do you see that this is a person mm. with a genet, genetic DNA? And that alone is access to full equal rights of personhood. Because if you don't look at it as the genetic, you know, genesis of the genetic human person, then you are making a philosophical allowment for the measurement of human value because it says like, Hey, uh, culture has the right to measure human value at any point in development, even if it is at six weeks, even if it is at 20 weeks, even if it is at 40 weeks. And I like to try to try to bring this in too, because it's more of the reality we were facing too, is that the, that, um, Several state governments were presenting um, death by medical neglect up to 28 days after birth around the same time that my daughter was born. Hmm. That means that on the table, they could have told me, your daughter will have brain damage. Do not resuscitate because her value, her quality of life will, she'll be fed by a G-tube, she'll be, whatever they're, whatever they say. And she's better off dead. And the people that said it wasn't a reality that we could enter from the point of the discussion around human value within the womb could ever exit out of the womb and be put into question. You need to look at California, Maryland, and Colorado. Mm -hmm. And some conversations I've had with parents, one out of, out of Colorado in particular, their son had a very similar birth to Cosette. His was just a longer um, duration without oxygen. So a higher ischemic, damage, uh, brain damage. And they approached them and said, Hey, why don't we just put them into extended care? Because when he's 30 something years old, you're still going to be wiping his rear end. So we'll just with withhold all medical intervention and just let him die when he's just fine. So this is the reality that we're in because we put into question any point in the gestational development, the value of human life was put into question and will exit the womb. It already has exited the womb. And would you have people that without question say, yes, it is a right for a, a mom to just let her child die on the table. And that was a reality I could not handle either. Cause that's the, that's the idea that my daughter is not as valuable as her sister. And that's not a world that I'm okay with. And we need a serious rework of our mindset around human value within culture. And a big thing, you know, I've worked with the abortion discussion for well over a decade, because that was a lot of the topics I took on, I've seen every imaginable angle from pro-life to pro-choice. There's really nothing new under the sun unless it's just borderline psychotic, you know, uh, were it nonsensical. And I always feel like the conversation starts about two to three steps too, too far down the conversation mm. line. We need to bring it down foundationally. And it's very hard, uh, to refute the idea of human life holding intrinsic value when you place it at that level. Cause you know, if you come in on that discussion where you're like, I mean, talk about any talking point in the, uh, in the abortion discussion. It's like, it's all the same. It really is where you just kind of put intention, um, the level of value of human possesses. So like the mom has a greater human, a greater moral significance than that of the fetus because of, uh, the fetus's point in development makes them more dependent upon. So if that's the philosophical argument you're looking at, you're on a sliding scale of, of, um, value for your whole life, you know, because when you exit the womb, you leave that child there, they're still in a total state of dependence. They, they need you for a life for breath, you know? And honestly, I mean, you can argue all the way up until through adolescence, just a sliding scale of, of moral value. 
Um, and then once you hit the certain point, then if you get into an accident and you sustain any type of physical you know, and or mental impairment, then your measurable value, it decreases because it's off this philosophical concept that it's physical dependence that is where you derive or lose your moral worth, you know? So again, it's just this bringing it down another step and, and really seeing where those conversations lie. It's really hard to be like, Hey, you know, <laughs> culture should have a right to, to measure human value. I'm like, well, what about like the Holocaust? Kind of what they did. Uh, yeah, no, you don't support that. Okay. Well, let's have that conversation around the, the philosophy of what, how they got there. Because, you know, kind of jumping into that racial idea, we don't really talk about World War II in particular had multiple racial groups at at play at that time, right? And so we think of it like the Nazis are looking at Jews as a racial inferiority, but they always forget to talk about the Japanese and the death of 20 million Chinese that were killed because of their racial inferiority. <laughs> and we sort of, they've, they've divided and, you know, put us in these different camps and uh, forgetting the narrative that it's an impact on, it's a reality of the human condition to try to measure, right? We like to, to believe that we're better than someone else or we're stronger because we feel weak. And, you know, that's what Hitler played a part in. You know, they felt weak from World War One, and they he made them feel strong. He made them feel powerful. And when you feel powerful, you feel powerless, and you are made to feel powerful, you will always degrade someone else's value in that process to make yourself feel important. And if you make that allowance within culture at any level in development, you get this point in which they can say to my daughter, you're not worth living uh, your value is not worth it because uh, you're going to have disabilities. You know, I, I think what you're saying there, we're seeing similar discussions, and you, you mentioned this briefly, on the opposite end, particularly into into Canada of of, of euthanasia, of oh, yes. when's, when's the right time to end life. Um, and look, I'm I'm pretty staunchly against the whole practice. So just doing this for kind of the devil's advocate. Um, I think the intention is behind, um, oh, grandma's been suffering. She's going to die next month anyway. So why not do the merciful thing and just let her go down easy? Like that's, that's what's, but she's not a dog. Exactly. She's not a dog. So I liken this. Okay. So, so say grandma did die, right? You're, you're driving to the funeral. And you're greeted by the, you know, the groundskeeper and says, we're not going to bury your grandmother. Instead, we're going to toss her out in a field and that's going to serve as her final resting place. Why is it that that idea of not treating human remains with the dignity that's deserved when the soul is not there anymore. Even if you don't Mm -hmm. believe in a soul, that person doesn't exist, has no breath, no sentience. The idea that you don't treat that with respect is offensive, deeply disturbing. It's because it doesn't matter. That image in and of itself has value and you cannot Mm -hmm. just throw it away. You cannot dispense of it as if it's trash as if it's just a carcass of a deer, even that, even deer have value. And that's, you know, all things actually have value if you're really going to mm-hmm. uh, talk about it. But human value is is what it is. And you either value it wholly or you allow it to be valued not wholly. And mm-hmm. you allow, and it basically says this, if it isn't to be put into a segmented, we can, a scalable reality, it means that that truth existed always. It means that human value has always been measurable. It's measurable today. It's measurable in the future. It's measurable way back when. That means that slavery, that means that rape, that means that all of that sort of concept is, as long as it benefits society and the whole, which slavery, it does have a benefit, a whole holy benefit. And again, one of the uh, abortion debates off, 
arguments is that abortion benefits society wholly because it actually reduces mm-hmm. demand for welfare state and all these, you know, our prison systems, our school systems, there's a, a net benefit to society mm-hmm. by allowing abortion that's population control. And so if you allow that concept, you're essentially basically saying if it's okay today, it was okay yesterday. And then you were okay with every form of dignity measurement that's ever existed, as long as it wholly benefits society. If there's a net benefit, it's okay. And actually there's a lot of, um, I mean, I've written on this a lot over the years. Um, and especially since my daughter has been born, um, because there is a lot of ethical and I, I say ethical very loosely, um, around net benefited um, value measurement. So it's this idea that if society can, if the death of a disabled child, this is actually from a Princeton ethics professor, again, very loosely, (laughs) said that the death of a disabled infant uh, means that there could be a birth of a non-disabled infant and that child's life is a greater chance of happiness then it's, it's good that the disabled child dies because essentially they're around this concept of happiness being derived from your societal output, how you contribute to society as a whole is that's how you measure moral significance. That's how you, uh, measure, uh, net happiness, which I cannot tell you what it would feel like if, my daughter did not have breath in her body. Mm. Well, she is, and my, my oldest, I, I, try, I try to say this in the sense, like my oldest is so beautiful and sweet and I, I don't lessen her contribution to the world. But um, my youngest, I think it's just because of who she is and what she's overcome. There is just this shining light of joy. Mm. And children that I've met that are in the same situation as her, they're so deeply happy. They bring mm-hmm. so much joy. And let me tell you, I, I'm not lessening the impact of, of the struggle too. Cause you know, I mean, my, my daughter stopped breathing four or five, six times a day for first two years of her life. You know, your child chokes on a, a chicken nugget once. And it's like, you're, it was terrifying. Like, yeah, that was first two years of my, of her life was just, uh, it was a struggle, but I, mm. I couldn't imagine not fighting to put that breath back in her lungs every single time to ensure that she is still here. I don't if I could go back and change the circumstance of her birth. Absolutely. So she didn't have to struggle through that. But let me tell you, my daughter is not disabled. My daughter is actually, I actually look at her comparative to my oldest daughter in the sense of struggle breeds character development. Her first breath on this side of the womb is is a testament to that journey of character development that my oldest, I have to falsify. I know that seems kind of weird. Uh, I have to create instances of struggle where she can have development in her character, uh, where my youngest, I don't have to do that because just by every breath, she's striving and pushing through in a way that my oldest is, is not going to ever really fully understand. And me too. Like, I I mean, I'm fighting with her, but I just look on her in such awe, like that is human strength. That is human resilience. She is powerful. She is important. She has brought so much happiness with her disability or without, you know, I'm just this concept of measurable value is, um, it's a sick thing. It really is. Well, it, you know, you were just talking about the World War II, and I've been having kind of this internal debate in my head about just, just about eugenics in general, and that was a huge 20th century, early 20th century theme. Um, and then obviously, yeah, World War II, like, oh, that's that's bad. Um, but I, my my internal struggle here is like, did it ever go away or was it just kind of not talked about as much because it's pretty apparent that nobody's coming out and just saying, yeah, yeah, I'm for eugenics, but saying to not treat your daughter, how is that not eugenics? That's, that's awful. It it still exists very much. Identity politics is very much rooted in a eugenics argument. Mm 
um, it it is this idea that um, value is buildable based upon a criteria set out by culture at the time, right? So our culture is setting those value criteria that looks different than it did in Nazi Germany, right? But it's still the same basic principle. Mm-hmm. And like I was saying that, you know, in Uganda, the, the principle is the same as in America. We're doing the same thing. It's under the same idea that we can measure human value based on a criteria that's set out by that culture in this time now. And it's not, it wasn't okay then, it's not okay now. Or it was okay then, and it is okay now. You're either in one camp or the other. Mm-hmm. And um, that's why I like to, you know, discuss this in, in a way that, um, you know, the organization that I founded, uh, we haven't really talked about that yet, mm-hmm. uh, was based off that need of connecting the dots. Because we're not connecting the dots very well mm-hmm. within these discussions. You know, a- again, you know, from, and that was a, that was a struggle. The non-connecting of dots was a struggle for me when I was addressing the issue of abortion and communication side of things is because I believed that it was a bit short, short-sighted. Um, and, it, and it was, you're addressing too much of the political noise. Like you just, you're never gonna, you're never, you're always gonna lose at that level. It was just very frustrating. Um, and, and especially in the abortion area, it's, it's such a politically like loud area. We can all mm-hmm. agree on that. But if you walked over just to the side, and let's talk about human trafficking. It's a very, very big discussion, very, very big shift in mentality around that discussion, no matter who you're speaking to, whether they're left, right, center, wherever. They're like, yeah, trafficking is bad. Like we should not do that. <laughs> Yeah. Except for the problem is trafficking is not only uh, surviving, it's thriving. I call it like the McDonald's. Uh, everybody swears they're not a part of it, but they're obviously growing, right? And the problem is, is that human trafficking in and of itself doesn't exist because of trafficking. There's mm-hmm. a demand that drives in to trafficking. So porn culture. That is a big part. So the very first person that is dehumanized in the process is a man. A man is taught that he is nothing but a set of chemical impulses uh, that need not be controlled. And an outlet is through, through this is pornography. And he starts to consume and his mentality shifts from the harmless uh, distance to the physical consumer or which offsets the supply and demand for the willful participants in pornography, the porn industry or sex industry to the non-willful participants in the sex industry. And so if they don't have enough willful, they'll get many unwillful participants. Those unwillful participants are getting, they get them addicted to drugs and they get them locked into a legal system that prevents them from thriving and they guilt them into staying and they're addicted to drugs anyway. So that keeps them there. So drug culture feeds into it. Then when they're impregnated, they're sent to the abortion industry in order to get those sort of symptoms of the consequences of the industry to have that problem removed. And then, you know, it's just there, it's more connective than we give it credit for. Mm. And because of that idea of the complexity of these interwoven, I, um, players to approach it from that foundational precept too. really, we cannot have any evidence of commoditizing of human value. Like, because if you just get rid of human trafficking or try to address just trafficking in itself, you're, you're always going to have a demand feeding into it, mm. things that are perpetuating it. So Again, I dealt with all these really hard issues. So I I just felt God was convicting me like, we have to do this differently. We can't do this the same way because it's like we have a dam that is bursting and we're just sticking our fingers in it, just (laughs) praying to God that it doesn't just, and it's about to blow. Mm. And so instead of just sticking our holes (laughs) and waiting for the impending disaster, we have to sort find the source of the problem itself. And it's really rooted in this idea of human value. 
changing and shifting our mindset around it culturally. So for people that are listening, and I, I'm going to speak for the audience, I think most are probably going to track with you that, yes, um, just going to the ballot box voting for the right person, um, while is not inherently a, a bad thing, it's not we're not getting to that deeper level or just having a, a quick little debate over abortion or, or human trafficking or whatever it may be. Um, again, it's not really sufficient. It's not getting to the depths yeah. there. So th- those that are listening that are like, okay, yeah, we want to get to the deeper level, but how do I do it? What, what steps do I take to kind of start changing some minds and, and being able to have cultural change towards, towards life in that way? What, what yeah. do you think that they can do? Yeah. So I, I want to first sort of address like how we're approaching holistically as an organization and then see how they sort of fit into that. Mm-hmm. Because one of the big lessons I always learned in, in communications and which we call t- digital advocacy or advocacy in general is that not everybody can uh, do all things, right? The mm-hmm. point of entry is sometimes it's you can sign a t- petition. Sometimes it's can share information. Sometimes it's you can donate. Sometimes it's you can volunteer, you know, like everybody has their role to play in that, in mm-hmm. the battle at hand. Um, and so some coming at this from organization, we um, wanted to be holistic about our approach. Um, so we wanted to have kind of a three prong um, area of impact. So we want to educate to change grassroots mindset around human value through the telling of stories and really like like my daughter's story or many others mm-hmm. that have experienced this measurement of their, their value through culture and to really start to think outside like, oh my gosh, actually we are doing that. Sometimes it's just about like that idea, okay, the question, because the question, the questioning is where we, is where we begin to change our concepts about uh a value, right? Um, because the thing we're preaching too much forward and saying, Hey, you must believe this. Well, and they're like, why? And so if you start to, to think holistically about this idea of human value and educate, we can start to see that lot. And this is a longer term goal. <laughs> Education mm-hmm. is long term. You don't just see that overnight, but also not only does culture impact policy, policy impacts culture, right? So we do have to look at policy. And so, you know, we're compiling experts that can help with educating, and but we're also going into the halls of government to try to be a stopgap for laws like the one I mentioned in Colorado that are allowing for the death of infants up to 28 days after birth. Like, you got to stop that stuff before it goes through, mm-hmm. right? And then also, additionally, organizations. One of the biggest critiques, especially in the abortion uh, arena, is that you don't care enough about the person beyond their birth, which is actually one of the biggest lies there is. Because it's not true. Because there's thousands upon thousands upon thousands of nonprofits out there that are working on their little corner of the dignity arena, whatever, whether it's in human trafficking or if, you know abortion, whatever it is. And again, like even on abortion, there's different aspects of like the mother and the child's care or if your child has disabilities or, you know, there's there's all these organizations that deeply care. But I've worked with organizations and they're really struggling to do their job well. Sometimes they're not connecting well with other organizations that can help amplify their impact. So we're trying to work with organizations to to find the connectivity, to improve how they're operating so they can better serve people. Transform culture well, improving how we serve people. So that's what we do organizationally. Um, and you as the individual is really to start thinking on that deeper level. And then, you know, organizationally, we want to share that content that that can have that different perspective, but to try to educate yourself, because again, we're coming at this so politically, we're allowing the political noise to like, and even from, I would even say from the pro pro-life side, there's a lot of this noise uh, that that's not helpful. It's more, it drives away conversation. It doesn't exactly mm-hmm. lend yourself to, to building those relationships with people that you go, hey, let's ask questions. Let's ask questions about the pro-life side. Let's ask questions about the pro-choice side. And, you know, what do we think about this or that? Or how, how is the abortion industry commoditizing? Let's, let's ask about that, you know, and ask hard questions. And, and don't just let your, 
uh, I, I wouldn't call it political bias, but j- the things that like you're, you're most like anchored towards start putting question marks around it so that those question marks make you stronger in your position. Mm-hmm. They do not make you weaker. They just don't. And then also to, to be aware of the public policy process, because what is very, very trouble, troublesome to me is that these, these laws can sneak through right? unnoticed by groups like, like ours uh, that would really care to do something about, uh, but don't always have the ear to the ground in all parts of the nation, right? Mm. So um, we have a place on our, our website that's just a contact us forum. We use that for all things. You know, if you're in Colorado and you see something like that, you know, reach out to an organization, even if it's just not ours, but another policy group that's in your area and just like, hey, really feed into this because mm. we need to change culture through the conversations we have and the questions we're asking. But we also need to make sure that our public policy is just, it is is protecting life. And, and I always try to make this point too, that if, if somebody tries to say that, that law is not designed to preserve human value, I ask you to look at our traffic laws. So Hmm. why do we have traffic laws? Well, like order. No, really it's the idea that you can't just jaywalk and walk out into traffic because you have value and other people that you could potentially intercept have value too. It's not just about order. All of our laws, we maintain bodily autonomy in, in so much as it affects somebody else's bodily autonomy. So our laws should, at its foundation, look at not just the order they create within society, but the value and the impact that our choices make on other people's value. So really thinking like more holistically around that and our mindset around what law is actually supposed to do. Mm-hmm. Um, it's actually supposed to protect us. And so we can maintain proper bodily autonomy. So I'm not a fan of that argument. It's such a silly idea because they're like, what laws dictate men's bodily autonomy? I'm like every law, like <laughs> you can't, you can't take a left turn when it's red. Okay. It's like pretty much everything is supposed supposed to, dictate what you can and cannot do with your body, your intellectual Mm. output, because if you're doing these things that are affecting someone else in a negative fashion, that should be unlawful. Right. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's pretty wild. I I, I think that's all, all great information. Your uh, organization sounds like it's doing not just great work. um, Like I, I generally will, we'll plug for people to, uh, you know, be involved if, if they're, um, supportive of pro-life type of things of, of going to, um, your local like crisis pregnancy center and things of that nature, which are fantastic. Um, but what I like about what you're describing of your organization is there's not a lot of those going around. Like there's a ton of crisis pregnancy centers, which are great, but like you're saying, there are some that thrive and some that don't. So why aren't they thriving and how can we help them? Um, I think that's great that you're just the whole basis of your organization is kind of that deeper layer thinking, um, which is desperately needed in, in this movement for sure. Yeah. And I, I hated this idea. And again, everybody's kind of, I've worked in organizations for a lot of times, like they, they get the group, territory and you feel comfy in your territory and you don't want Mm -hmm. anybody to step in your territory. And I think that is a harmful thinking Mm -hmm. because sometimes those territories they need to cross so that those other organizations that can actually build you up and they can, you can build them up. There's there, they have strengths that are your weaknesses. And sometimes you don't need to build those parts of yourself up. You just need to deal smart partnerships, you know, get that interconnectivity and the camaraderie around the deep, deep desire to, for protection of life. Right. So I always take, take heed to the criticism, right? The pro-choice mm-hmm. is always going to say, you don't care, prove them wrong. You care so much that you will go into the places that they are unwilling to go because mm-hmm. you see that person that is hurt in a trafficking situation. You feel that, see that woman that is being exploited by the abortion industry. You see that man that is addicted to uh, pornography that is putting his family in a, in a terrible situation, whatever, whatever it is, you care so much that you want to exact change, mm. prove them wrong, 
get up, stand up, do what you need. And, and we all have our own thing that we're supposed to be doing, right? You don't have to like do everything, find your thing, care about that thing. And the people that are affected by that thing. It's just that simple. Uh, Absolutely. Um, I said, this has been wonderful. I I could, uh, I'm sure we could share stories all day long (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, for for audience members that are listening to you that want to stay plugged into you, um, follow you on social media, learn more about your organization. uh, How can they be be in contact with you? Sure. Our organization is called uh, Dignity Defense Institute and it's dignitydefense.org that you can find us dignitydefense.com will bring you to a gun manufacturer. That's not us. <laughs> Though I kind of appreciate that a little bit in the sense of like, yeah. So .org is very important. And uh, we also have our own pro- uh, podcast. It's called Pro Dignity, No Doubt. And it's very oriented towards these really tough stories and tough questions surrounding the different ways that uh, American culture measures our value and the impacts and people's life, real life. And uh, on our website, pretty much m- most of the social media is, is mine at this point. It's at Nicole M Y Smith. You'll pretty much on any platform you'll find me. Um, but you can look on our website. It's they're on there too. So yeah, that's how you reach us. Awesome. Well, I have all that included down in the show notes. And again, Nicole, it's great having you on. Uh, wonderful stories, wonderful organization, and uh, certainly very, very thankful for you to be on the show and, and for you to share that with us today. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. And thank you to everyone that were listening along with us today. Again, uh, check out all Nicole's stuff down, down in the show notes, and we'll see you on the next episode.